I'm Zoe Bisbing, and this is the Full Bloom Podcast, where we're nurturing a more embodied and inclusive next generation. A few months ago, I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts, The Ezra Klein Show, and was introduced to the award-winning author and journalist, Ta-Nehisi Coates. Ta-Nehisi was on with Nicole Hannah-James discussing the 1619 Project, enslavement and racism in America, and the threat to our democracy, among other very difficult and dark things. But when the conversation turned to hope for the future, Coates, who has enjoyed a successful run writing Marvel's Black Panther and Captain America comic series, said, This is rude to say, but there are people that I recognize I can never get to because their imagination is already formed. And when their imagination is formed, no amount of facts can dislodge them. The kids, however, The kids who are in the process of having their imagination formed, who in the process of deciding, or not even deciding, but being influenced in such a way to figure out what are the boundaries of humanity, that's an ongoing battle. I heard that and I thought, oh my gosh, this is what we're doing here at Full Bloom. We're trying to help our children use their imagination to create a better world, right? And we talk a lot on this show about how harmful weight stigma is. And and many of us, grown-ups, have made a lot of progress on an intellectual level. But I think what Coates is saying is right. There are very real limits to an adult's capacity to truly take in a radically new truth, especially about something that has been so ingrained. I hear this a lot from my adult patients. They intellectually get that all bodies, regardless of size and shape, deserve to be loved, respected, and treated fairly, and yet they can't quite believe it for themselves. Perhaps it is an imagination deficit or a rewiring project that requires so much bandwidth and more than the average person has on any given Wednesday. But this week, I'm sharing what I felt was a hopeful conversation with Sigrun Daniels Dotter, a psychologist, researcher, and activist who is responsible for the body respect movement in Iceland. Sigrun and I talked about why it seems so hard to truly reduce anti fat prejudice, the need to integrate body respect into basic human rights, and how we, as everyday activists, really can make changes to shift the culture so our children, regardless of their differences, can live with dignity, peace, and justice. Sigrun, welcome to the show. What can you tell us about anti-fat prejudice reduction? That's a really, really interesting question because there have been many studies and we have tried different approaches to lessen or eliminate anti-fat prejudice. But just like the quote that you read, we have found that it's very difficult to talk your way out of prejudice, Mm. to stop feeling prejudiced emotions, um, having prejudiced thoughts, biased actions, etc. 
So informing people about what we've often believed to be sort of like the um, underlying root of anti-fat prejudice, such as believing that higher weight people have less willpower or something like that, or that they are somehow responsible for how much their bodies weigh or something like that. We have found that that doesn't really work. So even if you inform people about, for example, the the um, physiological system that controls your weight and that we have much less individual sort of control over how much our bodies weigh, even if we know that, it may not change the fact that we may dislike fat people or that we dislike ourselves for being fat or that we are afraid of getting fat or something like that. What was really interesting in a review of studies that I did with Carrie O'Brien and Anna Chow over a decade ago, we looked at what had already been published and, and the results. And in general, we found that our efforts to lessen anti-fat bias or prejudice haven't been very successful. Mm-hmm. But what was really, at least to me, very interesting and empowering and sort of what has stuck with me all these years are studies where they weren't really manipulating the beliefs about fatness or fat people or or willpower or whatever. What they were manipulating was the perception of how many other people have these beliefs. Mm. So this is something that the researchers called social conformity. Mm. So if you think that a lot of your peers have a certain type of view, you are more likely to adopt this view, to express this view, and to cultivate this view in yourself. The only thing that they, for example, manipulated was the perception that For example, if your social group is middle-aged academics or young mothers or what have you, if you got the information that most people in this group think this or do not think this, you adjust your view to match the ones that are prevalent in your group. So that opens up a lot of possibilities. For example, the social acceptability of all kinds of hate speech, creating um, a social norm around what is acceptable to to say, to um, promote, how businesses are allowed to speak into the world and influence the world, the discourse that we allow um, in our homes, in our schools, all of these factors that sort of create the social norms around us, they can be manipulated or adjusted or corrected to reflect more body respect, for example. And that is probably um, a more effective approach rather than bombarding people with information, such as that we don't control how much we weigh or discrimination is really harmful or whatever. We should be focusing on the cultural aspect of it. And that's probably why social justice movements in general have been successful because they have managed to change the general culture. Mm -hmm. They've shifted the general 
sort of the acceptable view of women or gay people or people with darker skin or people living in poverty or any group that has ever been marginalized. When you have this kind of uprising and demand for inclusion and respect and this sociocultural presence, we do see a shift in the public view. And that is something that we haven't really seen at a scale when it comes to body respect or fat prejudice. Why do you think that is? I think we are just still very much in the early days of this awakening. And what has also been, what I think, a major obstacle to why we haven't seen these kinds of large movements when it comes to fat rights in the same way that we have seen with gay rights or women's rights or whatever, is that we have, I would like to say to this day, but I think it's it's really still going on, so we may not even be there yet. But we have had this illusion that stemming from this idea of personal responsibility, that it is really a choice to be fat. People's efforts have gone into changing their bodies and blaming themselves for their weight rather than seeing the culture as the target for change. Of course, this was the focus for gay rights for centuries. I mean, it was considered a sin and something that you could control and that it was your responsibility to rid yourself of of these sinful thoughts and behaviors and, and all of that. And it wasn't until we stopped viewing, for example, sexuality as something that is a personal choice or something that you you can and you should work with or try to control or, or try to shape into whatever is socially acceptable. We are starting to drift away from this view that a person's weight is completely a consequence of their choices and how they choose to live. But we are very much still stuck in this dilemma. Yeah, I'm thinking about what you're saying, that the education, information, kind of intellectual understanding of, let's say, set point theory or the kind of weight science, right, like that you're talking about, how that's not enough. It's necessary, but not sufficient. Right. Necessary, but not sufficient and necessary to get like, oh, there's a problem here. But then what you're describing is what I see all the time. People saying, I get it. I know. But what do I do about it? Like, what does it mean to, quote, fight diet culture or change the culture? Or I think about how conceptual, you know, it's it's almost like it's too broad, right? And whether we're thinking about a parent in a community, a teacher in a school, a student in a school who gets it and says, okay, I want to divest, you know, I don't want to try to change my body. I want to try to change the world. You know, these memes that you see, Where does one begin, right? Like, and I wonder if you could share based on your knowledge of experience, um, clinical experience and research and your own activism, what are some concrete steps folks can take to 
work on reducing, okay, their own anti-fat prejudice, but really try to change the world, right? Try to change the air that they're breathing and maybe even more importantly, the air that the young people around them are breathing. Right. I think the first step for everybody, a person, an institution, company, a health provider, anybody should be to first do no harm. So if you know intellectually what is problematic, then that is at least something that you can avoid. So you know that um, commenting on a person's weight is not constructive, it's not helpful. So don't do it. Um, you know that diets don't work. Don't do it. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's easier said than done. I know that because so much of the diet culture is sort of being masked as healthy living and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but starting from this point, and even if you're not all there yet as a person, for example, as a parent, intellectually, you can know enough to not transfer this over to your kids, to not be commenting on you know, how much your kids are eating or that something is going to make them fat or that somebody looks so good because they've lost weight or that you're criticizing your own body in front of the mirror or something like that. I mean, you know that you can intellectually know the pitfalls and avoid them and stop this sort of this generational transfer of body hatred and shame. And I think that that is something that we can absolutely do. And in many respects, I think that the younger generation today is much healthier than, for example, my generation or my my parents' generation, because they were so, and we were so oblivious to the, the forces at play. So we were completely vulnerable to them. Yeah. Now we know that something is harmful for us. We know that certain, you know, TV shows or websites or blogs or whatever contain harmful stereotypes and we may not be in a place where we can cut them out of our lives but the first step is knowing and what has been very helpful for me in my journey because I think that anyone at least within our generation we started out very fat phobic I mean that was part of just the cultural atmosphere that we grew up in. And that's something that we didn't start to question until we were adults. So for all of us, it's, it's entailed a lot of unpacking and there's, you know, this metaphor of, of there are layers and layers and layers of, of all these cultural conditioning that we have to sort of peel away from us. And it's a process. It's probably a lifelong process, but what's been very helpful for me is to be um, to always come back to this as a social justice issue. Mm-hmm. And that may be just because that to me, that is something that I can very wholeheartedly commit to. It's, it's a part of my values, I guess, in life. You know, I want to be accepting and I, I believe in a, in a <laughs> just world and everybody's equal rights and things like that. So Reminding myself that, for example, commenting on somebody's weight or that flick of panic when you find that your pants don't fit you anymore or something like that, to 
remind myself that this is coming from an ideology that I don't buy into. It's coming from the ideology that being heavier is somehow worse and makes me a less valuable person than being um, lighter. To me, it's helped me sort of redirect my thinking again and again and again. I don't want any other biased or, or bigoted ideas to flourish in my mind. So, you know, when something pops up, I just, I like to cut it as a, as a form of pruning or mm-hmm. whatever, you know, but I, but I think for, for us that we didn't have this growing up, it's probably going to be a process like that. It's, it's a process of pruning and reminding ourselves of the values that we um, want to live by. But I'm hoping that with the next generation, we're going to see kids that have actually been subjected to this worldview that our bodies are good bodies. And I'm seeing empowerment in younger, heavier girls than that, that was just unimaginable, for mm-hmm. example, in my youth, to see anything like that, mm-hmm. to see a higher weight teen you know, proudly um, wearing a bikini or having a Instagram page celebrating body um, diversity or something like that. So I do think that over time we are going to get to a better place. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I share your hope and this anti-fat prejudice reduction work that's happening internally for those of us that grew up in this culture it's a ton of work, right? Like you were just describing the pruning, noticing that I have an urge to say something or I have an urge to think something that huh, is in conflict with actually core values that I hold. This is like exhausting, you know? And at the same time, I'm hearing you say, well, that is prerequisite for then helping the young people around you grow up in a, just a different environment. Actually, this individual work is how you can start to shape the culture, even if it's a micro culture around you. And that's without doing any active activism. It's almost like internal activism. And I wonder if you could now give us just a couple of examples of how one of those grown-ups could actually start to take that internal work outside, right? Even if it's outside their home, maybe into their classroom, into their school, into their, I don't know, Girl Scout group, you know, however we, we do communities, into their church group, like to essentially create like almost a satellite body respect Iceland, because I want a little template here, a cheat sheet, if you will. Yes, I think that anybody can if they want to use any platform that they have access to, to challenge these prevailing ideas that uh, a certain type of body is better than another type of body. And that having a certain kind of body has anything to do with a person's value or their deserving of respect and um, acknowledgement and anything good in this world. For me, I regard these kinds of activism or mini acts of activism or something like the opposite of, of microaggression, I guess, 
if somebody in the cafeteria at work says a fat joke, say something. Don't just laugh along at the family dinner or gathering or barbecue or whatever. And and people are, are talking about the latest diet or that somebody has gained weight and it's just awful or whatever. Say something. And then there are people who have like a more... I guess, um, influential platform like a teacher or a doctor or somebody who's, who's working with people on a daily basis, they can look at the standards in their own workplace. For example, a teacher could, I mean, we can use the pre-existing schools have policies on all kinds of things. They have policies on bullying. They have policies on human rights mm-hmm. in general. I mean, they have a policy on racial justice, on um, feminism, gay culture, anything, at least in Iceland they do. And, mm-hmm. and then, you know, you can just simply adding weight or body respect or, or body positivity to that that's already exists in the school when it comes to human diversity and, and the need for respecting that diversity. That is a huge step because, at least in Iceland, usually weight is never addressed in any of these policies. Right. I want to add to what you're saying. You know, there's the policy element of it. Like, we spoke to Rebecca Poole in our first season and discovered that the weight-based teasing is, it sounds like it's like number one, anti-bullying policies in a lot of schools didn't even have weight-based teasing as part of them. But I also, through another conversation I had with someone who's coming on this season, just fat talk or compliments about bodies or let's just call it fat talk, right? Complaints about the size and shape of your body. This would be enormously impactful if a school community, a classroom community added that to the type of speech that we do not tolerate here. And this requires increasing teachers, let's say, awareness and attunement to stuff like this. Because going back to what we were talking about earlier, that stuff just sounds normal. That's just what we grew up with. And it's um, unfortunately, it's very natural to say, oh, I feel so fat. And we all know what that means. And yet the harm that's causing really everybody, even the folks that are saying it, let alone the child in a larger body that's hearing that right next to them. So adding that layer, I think, is really important. And that's even separate from the school policy, but rather just what we tolerate in terms of talk, not even if someone's being teased. Exactly. And we have to start very early with that. You're always going to catch kids saying something that is essentially misogynistic or racist or or homophobic or something, not because they have adopted these views, but they are part of the the cultural elements floating around in their upbringing and their culture. So naturally, they're going to pick some of that up and we would correct them very gently and explain why this is not acceptable, why you shouldn't say that what this really means when you say something like that. Um, And we definitely need to add fatness and weight to that equation. So it doesn't have to be any more complicated than when you hear your kid or your pupil say something about somebody being old or somebody being, you know, 
looking girly or <laughs> whatever, um, and they say something stereotypical about it, and you correct them. And you have to start having these kinds of conversations with kids very early because we know from research that, well, first of all, we know that we're not born with weight prejudice. They've done like studies on babies. So when we're trying to understand babies' um, preferences or what they find enjoyable and not enjoyable, what they've done is they've, for example, shown pictures to babies and just recorded the amount of time that they choose to look at the particular photo. So we know that they spend a lot of time or more time even looking at a heavier person's face than so so you don't see this this thin preference with babies but around the age of 3 it's already there. So sometime in the toddler years they adopt the prevailing worldview around them that is better somehow to be thinner than fatter. And they also, they adopt gender stereotypes around the same age, you know, so it's not specific to weight. It's just, this is the time where they have sort of become, I guess, culturally conditioned to a certain point. And then it's just something that grows and grows and grows as they get older. Mm -hmm. So you would need to start this in preschool. And then it's an ongoing process throughout the entire childhood. Um, and you may see, and this is something that I've learned by, you know, talking to parents, talking to teachers and, and being a parent myself, is that you have to be very patient and you have to be very sort of persistent and not give up because you will have periods where you think that you've just lost them, especially mm -hmm. around the teenage years, you know, so you've sort of, you think that you've created this perfect body accepting atmosphere and that, you know, you've taught your kids or your students mm -hmm. all the right sort of facts and ideas and whatever. And then they turn to, to the teenage years and they start dieting or they they start taking steroids or whatever. And they... It's the social conformity. Yeah. But I think that also what we see is that once this intense adolescent appearance mega focused phase in life is over if the foundation is good they do come back to it you know but it's incredibly difficult i think to be a teen in the era of of social media and it's very easy for parents and teachers to, to just feel that they they've lost the battle yeah but hopefully these seeds we've planted kind of increase inside the person cognitive dissonance that they can't shake, right? That's the goal, at least that's my hope for my own children and, and for the next generation that we've planted enough ideas that, okay, maybe they still need to go through what you're describing and conform and kind of struggle along the way, right? And maybe hopefully not diet, because at least that's like, diets don't work. Diets are bad. It's getting a little better, the marketing around that. But hopefully they will understand that they have values that include this. I, again, it goes back to the the social justice. It's And this idea of like who gets to have dignity and who gets to have respect. Is it only if you look a certain way or could it be just you as you are? And then I think that challenge, right? It's like going back to the beginning, 
Can we make it cool? Exactly the kinds of conversations that we need to have with kids. What you just said, it's exactly that. Like, who gets to feel at home in their bodies? Do we honestly believe that that is justice and that is somehow fair that a certain group of people are just doomed to feel uncomfortable and ashamed in their bodies? You know, is that something that, is that a world view that we are going to support and maintain? You know, I think it's always ultimately a question of social justice. It's been my experience that um, until you draw the conversation to that level, that's where you get the light bulb moments. Yes. You know, that's where you get the understanding. Yes, you're right. It's, it's wrong. We have to change it. And I also wanted to add, because we were talking about what we can do as parents or teachers or, or people who are working with kids, we've already talked about what we can do as a person, what you can do in your home or your, your classroom. You shouldn't stop there. You should be an advocate for body respect in all the other spaces where your students are learning or your kids are growing up. You know, you need to have this conversation with the grandparents or the PE teachers or Mm -hmm. the football coach or because the thing about doing no harm, we also have to try what we can to make sure that all of the spaces where our kids are growing up are at least not, you know, working against what we're trying to do, you know. So if you have a like body positive social studies teacher or life skills teacher or something like that, and then you have a very diet, stereotypical focused PE teacher, and then that student is just going to go to school and get two conflicting um, kinds of messages, which just creates confusion and one thing is working against the other. So we definitely need to sort of look at what we are doing ourselves, but also around us. Yeah. And then it's like a diffusion of responsibility, right? Like who is the one that then comes in and says, okay, there are two different messages, you know, social studies teachers, super body positive and really informed for example, PE teacher is not, what do we do? You know, and I I could see that then becoming a complicated because really you need to get to the top of the system that can then trickle, the information can trickle down. But I imagine that that requires a little more coordination. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. But I mean, you could definitely go to the principal and discuss these things and referring to the school's policies again. The school has a commitment to, to children's well-being and social justice and human rights. And you can definitely use that to draw attention to the fact that the way that we are approaching, for example, health and fitness in gym is actually conflicting with our policy here and here. So that's that's a type of, I guess, an everyday activism that, that we can all do. Yeah. And I think inspired by this conversation, we're doing or I'm doing more uh, part of a monthly newsletter, just offering a resource, creating full bloom project, creating resources. And last month we created a resource that was if you discover that your child's teacher 
is maybe not informed about really kind of neutral ways to talk about bodies and food, I created a template that people can use as like a letter to send to get that conversation started because those emails are even hard to draft. And so I think this is going to inspire me to create one template for going to maybe your principal or your head of school to just start a conversation about a a lack of cohesion around the culture of the school. So I I think that we could maybe help, (laughs) help people get that conversation started. That is amazing. Wow. That is so cool. Yeah. So you have the concrete steps, way more concrete than I do. Well, but informed by what you're teaching us, I wonder if you have any resources that you want to share with listeners who want to learn more. Right. Well, there's so much, I think, today Mm -hmm. out there where, you know, you can look. And in America, I love, for example, Reagan Chastain's block, Mm -hmm. Dances with Bats. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if you're into research material the science of weight bias and fat rights is is really growing very much these past years looking for articles in in academic venues is something that to some people is very helpful for my personal reading list a book that i haven't read yet but is something that i, uh, I plan to do is by sophie hagen happy fat mm-hmm. I haven't read that yet either yeah. I mean, those are good resources. And and your book, too, your children's book is wonderful. Your body is brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> I also had the, um, the wonderful chance to work with the amazing uh, Rebecca Sugar, who created the Steven Universe cartoon series mm. on Cartoon, Net- cartoon Network. We did a project together with Dove, the company. Yes. On... Body Respect. So that's an ebook. Oh, how do we get that? I could send you the link if you're... Yeah. Can you send it to me? Because if you send it to me, then I can make sure everybody has access to it that listens. Those are great. And I'll close and I'm curious. I'm going to share this and then I'm curious what you have to say. So your book, I love it. I As soon as I discovered it, I'm a body positive parenting enthusiast. So I was really excited to see this. So for those listening, the book is called Your Body is Brilliant, Body Respect for Children. And I was reading it to my kids. And my I was reading that to my two older boys. I can't remember how old they were at the time, four and four and five or something. And I was reading it, you know, so excited. And they said, Oh, this book is stupid. We know this already. Can we please read Dragons Love Tacos? Like some other book. And I was like, this book is not stupid. It's beautiful and everybody needs it. And, you know, and, but I thought about how it's still impactful. And I share it only because, first of all, your book is not stupid. It is amazing. But I'm okay with those comments and with the eye rolls because it's sort of going back to what you were saying before about like when you can kind of give up hope. But I do think that even just having a book like that lying around your house, it's doing something, right? Even reading it to them and having them say, ah, we know this already. Let me do something else. It, it's still making an impact. I don't know if you think I'm just telling myself that or if you think that maybe there's some truth there. Well, I think so, too. <laughs> um, and I, I, you know, 
my youngest son also thinks my book is stupid. So <laughs> <laughs> I can relate. It's something I'm, I I have a like, a, there was a moment, I think at the end of the book, it says something like, you know, your body is your friend. Yeah. You no, know, and you're going to live in it for the rest of your life or something like that. And he was just like, oh my God, mom, my body is not my friend. You know, how, <laughs> you know how pathetic do you think I am? <laughs> have my body as a friend <laughs> well but i that... do think that all these nerdy mom things that we say and do they do make an impact mm-hmm. and to have something you know as a parent you are the leading person responsible for your home atmosphere mm-hmm. and making sure that body respect or body positivity is a part of your home and home atmosphere really does make a difference. And I think you won't know that completely until your kids are grown. Yeah, it's a long-term investment. It is, in not just in, in body positivity, but in, in all respects. And they're going to roll their eyes and even rebel against some of the things that you said. But the foundation is there. Yeah, I think we should end on that very hopeful note. Thank you so much. Thank you right back and thank you for all the, the, the amazing stuff that you're doing with the Full Boom project. It sounds amazing what you've done. So congratulations and thank you. So that's today's show. As always, please, if you're enjoying the show, rate review this episode on Apple Podcasts, share this episode so more people can join this body positive nurturing movement. Thank you all for listening and tune back in next time for more body positive nurturing wisdom. Mm -hmm.